From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. I'm MJ. And this is Mark. Perry. And we're... What? I said, hey, Perry. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is the Twilight Zone edition of the Tiny House Podcast because I am in a different dimensional reality while my co-hosts are in the studio. Which is why we had the best in- clap ever. <laughs> of course. We only had a, no, we only had to sync two of them yeah. instead of three. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So I'm on an undisclosed location surrounded by dun, two dun, cats dun. <clears throat> and uh, nursing my pink eye, which is why they banned me from the studio. <laughs> <laughs> can I tell Can I tell a pink eye story? Sure. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I went to boarding school and part of the boarding school experience was I was required to work at the sawmill. So I would work at the sawmill for four or five hours in the morning and then I would go to school for four or five hours in the afternoon. It was a way to work and pay off my bill at the same time. And so I got to the point about two weeks into the school year where I went to the nurse and then they said, because I had really, really bad eye infection of some kind and the nurse really couldn't figure it out. And so the nurse had decided that I was allergic to sawdust. So she gave me a note and told me I didn't have to work in the sawmill anymore. Well, there wasn't really any other jobs available. So I was pretty thrilled that I just got to sleep in and spend half my day doing nothing. So they sent a note to my mom and they informed her that I was no longer working so my parents would have to pick up the portion of the bill because I was not, you know, I was allergic to sawdust. And my mom came completely unglued and informed them I had been cleaning stalls since I was about nine years old and there was no way that I was allergic to sawdust. Maybe they should get a real doctor's diagnosis. Which, mm-hmm. of course, I'm sure you know the end of this story. It was actually pink eye, which was uh-huh. I got as a result of actually sharing makeup with, you know, 24 other girls in the in the dorm. There was actually a, a huge breakout of it at the time. So I had to go back to work, sadly, in a sawmill with my pink eye. It was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> well, I can't say that there's any exposure to makeup or makeup parties in my life. I'm not sure where this pink <laughs> eye is coming from. <laughs> Obviously, I shook somebody's hand at the TED event and then put it in my eye or something. I don't know where it came from, but it just came on surprisingly fast. Oh, when how I walked was into that? The doctor, mm, yeah. When I walked into the doctor, um, the doctor looked at me and she just started laughing. And I said, what's so funny? And she said, well, everybody who's coming in has got pink eye. <gasps> huh. Really? So appar- yeah. She said, apparently this thing runs in batches, which isn't surprising since it's so contagious. All right. Tiny yeah. House Podcast. The pink, pink eye edition. edition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So how was TED, Portland, TEDx Portland? It was freaking fantastic. First time first time um, ever going. Uh, I was tot- left totally inspired. I actually went with Mark expecting us to, expecting me at least, to want to go after the first presenter who was our good friend, um, Kevin Cavanaugh. But after the after his event, I was re- after his speech, I was blown away. It was so well done, and the picture of his building just oh, it was so gorgeous. And then after that, the other ones that came on, 
I just I was just glued to my seat. Plus, interacting with the people, the other attendees was really fun too. And uh, oh, and of course, Mark was there. <laughs> <laughs> there was that. Th- those are called demerit points, right there. <laughs> Mark, what was your what was your takeaway? What was your take takeoff? Because you attend also so many similar events, I would uh, think, right? Ish. I mean, I try to not attend a lot of events, and I've never attended a TEDx either. Um, I've known a lot of people that have spoken at different TED events, mm-hmm. the, the, the official TED, so to speak. Right. Um, and I think the thing that's one of the things that surprised me the most, anyway, was you know, for all the 18 minute TED talks that we've seen on video, mm-hmm. when you see eight hours worth together, it's a whole different animal. I mean, really? there's there's a added to there's an additive effect that's there yeah um the feel of the room right exactly the feel of the room hearing the stories live hearing a combination of the stories in order kind of orchestrated the way they were almost programmed to be right that just took it a whole notch up and i was super impressed with the organizers i mean they've been doing this i think this was their eighth year right 3,000 people at the keller it's the second or third year they've done it at the keller they never intended it to grow this big um they got people, they got 3,000 people lunch in 11 minutes. <gasps> yeah, it was pretty wow. amazing. I mean, it wasn't the most organized process, but it worked really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yep. Exactly. That's cool. Well, it's on my bucket list. So, universe, I'm yep. putting it out there in the universe. So, hopefully, yeah. hopefully I'll have the opportunity to, to, uh, to attend and or present either one. Either <clears throat> one. Yep. Yeah. It's a good bucket yeah, list I could item. See you potentially, but I could see you potentially... Um, presenting there yeah it'd be fun it would be really really yeah. fun yep i'd have to yeah. practice and yeah that'd be cool so and we need to find out from kevin how that kind of came to be because some of the uh-oh what's going on there that's oh, not, that that's not supposed to do that Jeez. <laughs> i had it on do not disturb stupid iphone anyway <laughs> so uh but 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 we know like kevin for instance isn't one of the normal go-to people that you would expect to be out there, which really? is what part of what made it so right. exciting. So, because you yeah. can't, you can't, in general, you don't apply to be a TED or a TEDx speaker. They pick you. Right. So right. you kind of have to be out there in some yeah, way that makes like it interesting. Yeah, you have to be like nominated and yeah, Kinda, something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Which even makes it better, really, I think. Because nobody can just be yeah. out there trying to, me too, me too, me right, too. Right, right. Yeah. Alexa. oh Can you apply to be a TEDx speaker? Good question. I'm not sure. There you go. She doesn't I'm know not either. Sure. <laughs> She's just a wit, a quick wit. She's honest. Yeah, she's honest. She doesn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking about applying, our our current guest today uh, didn't have to apply for his position. He, uh, I met Michael Withy out of a conversation I had at the Powell's bookstore here in Portland. I was talking with a guy who was deep into the Occupy movement back in its heyday when um, there was, I believe there was a encampment downtown right across the street from the Portland building in that little park there. Yep. Um, I remember and, that. Uh, yep. And this guy who I was talking with at, at Powell's had mentioned uh, Michael. I don't even remember how his name actually came up, um, but I'm really glad it did because um, Michael, it turns out, is a not only a I don't know if they call him former Occupy members, Michael, so excuse me if that's an insult. Um, but he's also not only a, a former Occupy uh, participant, but he's also a advocate for uh, affordable housing and uh, tiny houses and planned communities and more. And so 
after hearing his story, I thought he'd be a great guest for us today on the Tiny House Podcast. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Perry. Can I can I just start out with, uh, I feel a little left out. I, I almost want to go catch some pink eye so I can get into this. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy and masochistic, I understand. <laughs> imagine, imagine Portland daycares right now are probably full of it, probably. Right. Uh, oh, sure. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so, Perry, I, I don't think you're wrong in saying former uh, member of Occupy because it is sort of disintegrated. Uh, but I believe that most of us that were part of the Occupy, uh, Portland Occupy Wall Street movement are still active. I think most of us are still into what we believed in. So maybe not former. Um, we don't gather anymore. Uh, but a lot of us are still very active in the community. And uh, yeah, so... Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I'm curious, Michael. Um, it did. I know this is a tiny house podcast, but we talk about all kinds of things. We're going to talk a little bit about Occupy and what happened because it seems like it just kind of faded into non-existence. Is that a pretty accurate statement or did you guys just decide to disband as a group or what happened? Well, yeah, yeah, like so many other things, uh, maybe even like May Day. Uh, you know, it starts out as a spring festival, turns into a workers' rights movement. Uh, and then it could be anything. It could be uh, anybody can join the march and uh, for whatever cause, and then it becomes a little diluted, and people sort of become disenchanted and stop listening. So I think that's pretty much what happened with the Occupy. I see. And and were you interested in um, housing issues before the Occupy movement? You know, I I was a volunteer with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, for many years, so I, I I was concerned about housing and 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 the affordability of housing, but I've I've never been in a position where I've had to actually worry about it personally. Uh, so I would go like after Katrina, volunteer for a year down in New Orleans in the Gulf region and help build uh, and repair homes. And uh, but I never got into the political side of it uh, until the Occupy. And and there's a story behind that. We should hear that story, but like Michelle has a question. Yeah, yeah, I do want to circle back to that story, but I do want to make a comment or a question about what you had said. You talked about the the message itself being diluted. I think sociologically right now, it's it's very, very increasingly difficult to keep people's attention on any one issue for very long. So to that, I would say kudos, first of all, because we were all paying attention for probably longer than you would expect, but... How do you sort of, again, how do you make that decision and say we've had our 15 minutes, um, especially in an organization like that? We've had our 15 minutes. This is the plan going forward. Well, I don't, I don't think with the, with the Occupy specifically, I don't think there was any plan going forward. I think it was up to each individual how they were going to carry on. Uh, so some of us uh, went into making sure fluoridation didn't go into the water in Portland. Some of us went into affordable housing. Some went into homelessness. Some, you know, went into fossil fuels. And so everybody just went their separate ways uh, and continued to act uh, on whatever they believe most important to them and whatever's closest to their heart. It's so interesting because the, there are so many issues in the world that people can pay attention to and put their energy into. And I could see how Occupy would kind of like do exactly what happened where people, if, if you know, no one's unified around a single cause or issue, they're going to splinter off into the causes and issues that inspire them most, I guess, or attract them most. And that's yeah. 
Absolutely. It started out that the banks were ripping us off. Uh, they were causing all kinds of strife in the world. Capitalism was reaching out to countries that uh, were, were being invaded by American corporations and worldwide corporations. Uh, they, were ta- they were gobbling up land, displacing whole tribes of people, whole communities, uh, pretty much even enslaving some communities. So really the Occupy was about corporate greed and crooked banks. Uh, and the politicians that helped them along the way. So that was the original message, I feel, I believe, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, uh, and so as we progressed actually early on, it became about gay rights, it became about housing, it became about workers' rights, it became about, you know, there were just dozens and dozens of different, uh, uh, you know, ideas that people had to change the world but uh it it just it i heard so many times from so many people what are you guys talking about what it is what is your message uh early on it was obvious well occupy wall street it was crooked wall street but it just became so diluted yeah michael it's interesting i was doing a little bit of research just the day on on um keywords in google and looking for um looking for evidence in global search patterns for dissatisfaction with capitalism and to be honest with you i couldn't find anything i, I found very very little google searches about and huh, you know maybe that is i was interesting. using I, isn't it I, does I, that mean I google's like little, the ultimate corporate greedy <laughs> bastards i mean what is that well, no, what's no, i i think I, I don't know i i my conjecture and i didn't do a, a I didn't put a whole lot of effort into it, but I did spend about an hour trying to find the keywords that indic- that people were using to search for like alternatives to capitalism or corrupt capitalism or things like that. And there were like very, very few people searching the kinds of words like between zero and a thousand mm-hmm. less and, and less. And so I, I'm wondering, is, is it because in your pers- pers- perspective with Occupy, do you think it's because the dissatisfaction with capitalism is so under the radar that people just kind of tolerate it or, or does it even exist? It was, is, is, did Occupy fizzle because people don't really, cons- don't really think it's that big of a deal. Or, or could it have been complexity associated with the issue? That too. Well, I, I there's probably a couple different answers uh, for that question. Uh, I have my own I, uh, sort of perspective of how the Occupy dissolved, but to, to your original question about capitalism, I think more people consider two options, either capitalism, which is so tied to democracy, we yeah. think, and then there's socialism. So, and socialism is tied with communism, so you can pick one of the two. And so I think that people just have this preconceived notion that either you can be a capitalist Democrat or you can be a socialist communist. And so I I just don't think people think that deeply. I don't think that they give that much consideration to all the different options. And so, yeah, and and I also think that capitalism is so entwined in our society that we feel like it's just part of nature that without it will fail will become a third world nation that it is it made us what we are and it's just you know a part of us and we can't do anything about it so yeah 
So I know I'm asking a silly question, but isn't that part of who we are? Well, I believe it is. No, I I honestly, you know, the word itself has bad connotations, but there's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur. That's what we do. That's how we succeed in our lives. That's how we don't need to go to work at uh, Boeing. That's how we can spend time with our families. That's how. So, I, I I love entrepreneurialism. I've I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I, I love being self reliant. Um, but we need to separate what capitalism capitalism is and how greed plays into capitalism. How how capitalism can be overwhelming, like I was talking about going, taking big swaths of land in uh, another country to build a plantation. Uh, and so, you know, when you when you combine greed with capitalism, that's where you get the negative connotation. I think you also have to separate capitalism from entrepreneurialism. You can still absolutely. be an entrepreneur and operate outside of capitalism. Absolutely. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what was that? What was that story you were going to regale us about relative to? Do, do you remember? Yeah, the the, the 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 dissolve the downfall of the occupy. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, <laughs> before that one, before that one, we were going to talk about uh, what happened after New Orleans, and you had a story you were going to tell us about how I think how you got involved in Occupy as a result of being in New Orleans. Uh, no, no. I was just answering the question: is uh, which was uh, was I involved in the housing uh, issue uh, before the occupy? Oh. Yeah, I thought okay. that was your question. Yeah, that was my question. I, there was a there was a story you said you're going to tell, and we got off on this occupy tangent, and so I did not write a note to get back to the story. But that's okay. Yeah, no. The story the story that I wanted to tell was about how I got into. Uh, working on uh, solving homeless issues and yes. and into providing affordable housing and di- the different options to provide affordable housing. And which me- brings me right back to what Perry was originally w- uh, mentioned, uh, the park across the street from uh, the Portland building. Yeah. So we actually had three parks. We had Lounsdale, uh, Chapman, and Strunk Plaza, which is a federal park downtown. So we had those three whole blocks and they were packed and for the first i'd say two weeks it was pretty awesome we had built a a a lot of different places where some people could come and go and go to the different spots and cable even had a spot you could uh come and learn we had a library you could talk to the people that were sitting there and we could talk to each other about why we were there and everybody was coming people Kids were coming, people were, families were bringing their children, uh, senior citizens were coming, people with means were coming. It was a, a, a very organic and productive time. And I think that uh, from what I witnessed, uh, even though I didn't stay there, I sat at home for the first six days of it, but I was there all the time. Uh, but I, I noticed a trend. Uh, I was doing peace and safety. Uh, we had uh, different groups of people that would you know share information and do peace and safety and uh, food and so we had different colored armbands so I noticed uh, as peace and safety people uh, started coming up to me uh, 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 homeless people specifically uh, saying well you know I was told that I needed to come here by the police they raided our camp and said the only place you could be uh, is at the Occupy movement and 
So within, I'd say, a week from the second week to the third week, we had literally uh, changed from all people like with jobs and uh, going to school uh, to predominantly the street gangs. Yeah, um, Michael? Hmm. Yeah. Do, do you think that was a strategy on the part of uh, somebody, I don't know who, to to disrupt what you guys were doing in this part? Oh, oh that's a fact. I, oh, it's I, a fact. Uh, <laughs> it, it's an absolute fact. Be- why I say that is is that Sam Adams was down in, I believe, Atlanta, where they, were, they had uh, a, a mayor's conference. And the main focus of that conference was the Occupy movement. Because it wasn't just Portland, obviously. It was literally thousands of cities around America were experiencing the same thing. I mean, small towns, big cities, parks were being taken over by activists, and they needed to know what to do. So even though it didn't become public, I have no doubt that the instructions were given by Sam Adams uh, to the social workers, especially to the police, that they are to send the homeless people into the camps and so it, it i've spoke with literally hundreds of people around the country that have the same exact story that the first couple of weeks were great and we were growing and experiencing learning and things were going well but then all of a sudden we became inundated with homeless people and so when that happens obviously i don't want to I don't want to say bad things about homeless people, but there's a lot of drug activity. There's a lot of theft and stealing and violence. And uh, so with that uh, inundation of homeless folks uh, came a lot of negative uh, attention. And all of a sudden we had news uh, cameras coming in and they wouldn't talk to the activists they would talk to the homeless people oh that's and so yeah and so it went on television day after day after day and we were represented by the folks that were on methamphetamines folks that were uh, unclean and so i believe that the occupy movement was ruined intentionally by the mayors through this tactic I have no doubt because I was doing peace and safety and I literally spoke with hundreds of homeless people that came into the camp. I had one man uh, came up to me. He was like six foot four, big guy, clean cut. Uh, he walked right up to me and said, where do I get my tent and sleeping bag? And I'm like, well, I don't understand why you think we're giving away tents and sleeping bags. And so he handed me three pieces of paper. And the first piece of paper was a ticket, a Greyhound bus ticket from Salem. The second was a Google map of Chapman Square, where we were at. And the third was a uh, a, a piece of paper from the state mental hospital in Salem uh, explaining that he's been released. And so what it told me was the mental hospital in Salem actually bought this gentleman a ticket and told him to go to Chapman Square. That happened... If, if I would have heard it from somebody else, I would have been pretty skeptical about that. But I seen it. I was there. I was the one that witnessed it. So, yeah. I'm slack-jawed. So, I'm sitting in the studio with my mouth open. Like, that's incredulous. Well, It's funny it, because the, it's, it's funny that the homeless 
were used kind of like as a weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Weaponizing very the homeless, similar, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly very, very similar, as a matter of fact, to what I saw on that Rajneesi documentary mm. when they brought all the... Have you gotten that far, Mark? No, they, no, not yet. Oh, okay, well, anyway, so um, we, we need to... I think it would be very fascinating to have someone from the Rajneesi Purim in Oregon to come on to the show and talk about their experience. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so so... So Michael, okay, so so you have this this experience where the homeless homeless people descended on the Occupy movement. Well, I don't know. They they were sent. I don't think they actually Sorry, yeah, wanted yeah. to go there. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And and then how did that get you into thinking about housing? Well, so I I was obviously very frustrated and and pretty pretty pissed off uh, because our message had been diluted uh, by the very people that we were fighting. And so I felt that they had succeeded in their in their quest to, to break up the Occupy. Uh, and so I had to make a decision uh, what I was going to do about it personally. Most of the folks that uh, experienced and saw the same thing I'm talking about, uh, they, they just got disgusted and said, I'm done. I throw my hands up. I don't want to ever see a homeless person again. I, I, we've been defeated. They, they just went with their tails between their legs and went on with life. Uh, but as we were uh, going through this last breakup process, uh, the w- one of the folks from the Occupy movement, Colonel Moses is what they called him, uh, he went across the street to City Hall and put up a little vigil uh, for homeless people that had died. Uh, and there were candles there, and you know, it was more of a spiritual little place. And uh, nobody was sleeping there. Uh, it was just a little vigil. And so uh, the mayor, Mayor Adams, decided that it didn't belong there, so he had security go and take it down. And so that pissed a lot of us off. I mean, it's like, okay, so you did this to us, and now we're trying, or some of us are trying to honor the, the people that had spent their last days on the street, and you even disrespect that. So we started a protest uh where we actually would sleep outside of City Hall. So we we called it the anti-camping ban. And so we actually uh, surrounded City Hall and slept outside of City Hall as a protest. I didn't actually s- sleep at City Hall every night. Um, I would go home every other day and shower and sleep at home, but a lot of people did. And at, at some points of that protest, which lasted almost two years, we surrounded city hall and uh, the overflow sent us uh, to the across the street to the parks and the sidewalks uh, at trump plaza and chapman it got to be a pretty large protest yeah two and years so, is a record i'm sure <laughs> yeah and you know ibrahim mubarak of uh, you know, right to survive participated right to dream Two participated we had people come from around the country and participate uh, some people participated. Some people actually brought their families to participate. It was actually a pretty safe for the most part. Uh, we fed everybody that was there. I actually would barbecue on the sidewalk. Uh, and uh, I remember one day the city attorney came. It was on a Sunday. And the city attorney showed up uh, because so much smoke had gone up from the barbecue that helicopters from K2 News and others were flying over and wondering what's going on at City Hall. So they were pretty pissed off about it. Um, so she came up to me and said, you know, put that barbecue out. Don't know who you think you are, but you can't do that. And I'm like, well, I checked with the fire department, and yes, I can. So, you know, have a nice day. 
So she found out that we could actually barbecue. Most people don't know that. You can actually barbecue on a sidewalk in Portland as long as it's charcoal. They do now. can't use open flames. (laughs) (laughs) We've used that technique at a couple other protests. So so once they had uh, decided to take that down and we protested for a couple years, um, it became, again, uh, sort of a thing where drugs took over. And violence and drug dealing and, you know, needles on the sidewalk. And, and so I decided that I'd had enough of that. And uh, so I talked with Charlie Hales, who was mayor at the time, and said, hey, you know, this has become something that I'm not really wanting to participate anymore. Uh, if you would make a deal with me, I'll leave and I'll even go on television and say I'm done. Um and so the deal we sort of unofficially made was that he would uh, quit finding Right to Dream 2, uh, at the time still down on Burnside, uh, that he would work with the tiny house movement uh, to allow for tiny houses on wheels, help with uh, promotion of accessory dwelling units in people's backyards, um, try at least try to put some nonprofits together to put some sort of a relief effort together like we do after natural disasters uh, so the homeless people can have somewhere to go that's safe uh, and they can shower and do their laundry and leave their stuff there so they can go look for work or do whatever they need to do. And so Charlie actually agreed with all this. Well, hang on uh, a second, Michael. So how, much, how long after Occupy was this where you and Charlie came to this accord? It was about two years. Wow. So, and that not that right around the time, you guys, when we started doing this show? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so, there, so did you... Sorry, go ahead, Michelle. No, that's okay. I was going to say there are some people, um, you know, I have read that part of the reason why we in Portland have a, a pretty substantial homeless problem is because of the fact that people migrate here because of all the services we have and because of all the housing and because of all the the nonprofits and, you know, the services we have. And I am, have worked for some of those services, so I'm definitely familiar with the, the, uh, the yellow, the little yellow book that they pass out on the street mm-hmm. and so forth. So my question is, is that um, Portland views itself to be actually a pretty great um, supporter and advocate and service provider for the homeless. And if I understand correctly, you were protesting uh, lack of services and homeless. Um, so can you connect the dots for me? Or are you just saying that, or is your yeah. or is your perspective that whatever they're doing, it wasn't enough at the time? Well, what we were specifically protesting was the sit lie law. What the sit lie law said was that you couldn't sit anywhere for a certain amount of time you could not uh use anything to cover yourself it it rains a lot in portland so people are on the street it's illegal to erect anything to to keep the rain off you that even a tarp so you know not even a, so you couldn't sleep in a tent obviously it was against the law at the time to even have a tent in your backyard in portland without getting a permit so there were no tents there were no tarps so there was absolutely no way to protect yourself from the elements. There weren't shelters for people. The shelters were full. Homeless people were literally made to sleep on the sidewalk in the rain. That's what I was there protesting. I was there to protest the sit-lie laws. Mm, okay. And so so the at that time when you had that agreement with Charlie Hales, 
were you were you a were you on your own or were you a prominent leader at that time and and that's why he made the deal with you or what yeah i well i i wouldn't call myself a leader at the time but i certainly was one of the main organizers okay and i would be the one that the news stations would come up to um, um i was the one that the reporters would come talk to and do a story on so yeah in fact, back then, I think there's uh, the first the first time I told the story about uh, people homeless people being sent was in 2013 with the Willamette Week. Aaron Mesh did a story, um, and so yeah, interesting. And how did did how did or did you connect up with people like Cole and Deb and uh, 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 you guys help me out the the woman who built the little tiny house? I can't believe I'm D. Williams. Joan and D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how did how did you uh, how that happen? Well, so uh, at uh, I actually was able to procure Occupy Portland some space. Uh, we we were having a really hard time getting anybody to rent Occupy Portland space. So I had been contacted by Kate Lohr of the Unitarian Church. Uh, she had a friend uh, whose name is Rob Justice. Rob had founded Join. Uh, which is a, a service for a homeless service provider there in Portland. Uh, in fact, Mark Jolin, that, that now runs pretty much the homeless program for the city and the county, he was executive director after Rob Justice. Uh, so Rob Justice and I met at Kate Lohr's place, uh, and Rob set us up with, uh, uh, oh my goodness, I forget her name. That's not good. Uh, she runs St. Francis of Assisi. And so we were down at 12th and Oak, Southeast. So we rented a space there. I had met Rob Justice there. And Rob left me some brochures for a company that he had developed uh, with Dave Carboneau, who used to run PGE. He was the president of Portland General Electric. And uh, they had developed a company called TechDwell that still exists. And TechDwell, yeah. what they do is provide or uh, try to provide uh, modular housing units for victims of the Haiti. Uh, thing. So uh, I got together with Dave and uh, Rob and we sat down and uh, decided that perhaps we should try to put a community uh, of those technical units together to provide housing for homeless people. And that uh, that would be something that I would work on. So that is how I actually got into uh, the idea of putting tiny houses uh, together uh, as small communities for homeless folks. Interesting. Now you're, so, you're sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so uh, in the process of doing that, uh, I think uh, I presented to city council uh, the idea and uh, it went over pretty well. And uh, so Charlie Hales called a press conference unbeknownst to me actually and and said that he wanted to build four of them i happened to be at city hall at the time because i am meeting with another council member and so i hopped into that uh press conference and uh all of a sudden it went national in fact it was international i was in time magazine like the next week uh huffington post did an interview with them in new york times new york post seattle all the main and in the philippines it was in ireland it was crazy <laughs> so i was just inundated uh all of the sudden and uh i was contacted by joan or or d 
from Pad Tiny Houses asking if I could come and speak at one of their mixers. And so that's how I met Joan and Dee. And, and that's how I met uh, a lot of the other folks in, in the Tiny House on Wheels movement. Wow, this is like the backstory to the tiny house. <laughs> <laughs> well, Portland, I, it's so interesting. I have always sort of surmised, um, and with relatively little evidence, but I've always sort of surmised that the Portland, um, for our listeners, Portland recently, well, six or eight months ago, Portland did um, announce that they would no longer enforce the rule that you could not occupy to to use the term that you could not occupy your tiny house on wheels in Portland. Right. So they said we're not going to enforce that rule anymore. We're going to allow you to stay in your tiny house on wheels. We're going to allow you to stay in your RV on private property, you know, one per lot, da 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 da. But I always yeah. felt and I've I've stated a couple times maybe even on the podcast, I always felt as if that was sort of a backlash or sort of a response to the homeless issue, a response to the housing issue, a response to the high rents. Um, again, with nothing more than sort of anecdotal knowledge, but now my knowledge is more than anecdotal. Yeah. No, I, well, so here's how that happened. Uh, and this is another interesting story. So I was down uh, in Contra Costa County, which is uh, next to Oakland. Uh, and this is an 2014 I think November and don't quote me on that so I was I was meeting with folks from Google and I was doing a three-day long presentation paneling uh, with Contra Costa County Alliance on Homelessness and also had a meeting in uh, San Francisco uh, with one of the people that know knew the mayor and so I was trying to do all of this uh, stuff in the Bay Area and on my last day there with a meeting uh, with the people from San Francisco, I noticed uh, a newsstand talking about homeless uh, newspaper and a newsstand. It's a lot like the Mercury. And so I took it out. And what it was was the mayor was calling uh, for all the homeless people to leave uh, San Francisco. And it wasn't a really a request. And, and so the Super Bowl was coming up in February. And so what I what I read was is that the mayor of San Francisco had in August uh, did a press release uh, and a press conference actually uh, stating that he was going to more or less evict all the homeless people out of downtown San Francisco because the Super Bowl was coming up. And in November, uh, when I when I got back in November, um, I noticed that there were tents all over downtown, and I put two and two together. It's it's pretty simple. I mean, we had almost doubled the homeless population in Portland, and nobody seemed to have tied it to the fact that San Francisco was giving one-way bus tickets. Not giving. They were demanding that homeless people receive these one-way bus tickets. So I went to Josh Alpert at the mayor's office, and I said, listen, uh, I was just in San Francisco. It's November. The The... Super Bowl isn't until February. We already have double the population of homelessness. I think you need to do something about this. I think before it gets worse, you need to contact the mayor in San Francisco and make sure he does round trip tickets because we can't handle this. And so, sure enough, uh, a few months later, Portland declared a housing emergency, a homeless emergency. And so, to back to your statement about tiny houses being temporarily legal to stay in 
that that's what it stems from. It stems from the homeless emergency that San Francisco caused us. And so uh, that is part of the homeless emergency package that's temporary in Portland. You can actually now pop a tent in your backyard, one. Uh, home, if you know a homeless person, legally in the city of Portland, you can let them stay in your backyard in a tent and the city won't do anything about it. So, uh, and tiny houses as well. Now you can park uh, one tiny house in somebody's yard and, and not be fined and, and not be shut down. But again, that's temporary. Whenever they lift the emergency, which I don't see how they could ever do it uh, without a full-blown plan like we've offered them, then, uh, you know, tiny houses and tents are going to remain legal. Uh, it, it's unfortunate because Portland is renowned around the world. Joan and Dee go around the world talking about tiny houses, but here and but there in Portland, it's still illegal. It, it's part of a temporary fix for the homeless. Yeah, it's very, very, uh, very interesting backstory, uh, Michael. And I, I apologize we didn't have enough time to get into the stuff you're currently doing. We're definitely going to have to have you come back, but we're out of time. Wow. That was amazing. quick. It was. It's the best like conversations are over far too fast. Mm -hmm. Time yeah. flies. Well, yeah. think, uh... The stories that you told were just fascinating. Well, if you ever want to hear about the microhousing movement, that's even more fascinating. <laughs> well, yes, we're going to have Listeners, wait. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. Don't go anywhere. Um, Absolutely. Listeners, you've heard yet another fascinating, this one's probably one of the most fascinating shows we've had on the Tiny House Podcast. I'm so glad that you guys uh, tuned in to us and um, <clears throat> feel free to leave us a comment or on our website at tinyhousepodcast.com uh, or leave us a review on iTunes or any of the other many aggregators that are carrying our show now. We're starting and to get some commentary on Facebook. So oh, that's good. probably, I might be even the nice. easiest way, like mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, find us on Facebook, um, reach out, um, we'll connect you. And then uh, we're starting to get some other people commenting and, and posting some stuff on our Facebook page too. Nice. Great. Great. Yeah. And then a uh, quick shout out to Rick McDurney for uh, always making us sound as great as we Rick. But we can. Aren't. <laughs> yes, it's hard to polish a turd sometimes. Sometimes it is. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> Thank you, Alexa, for being our co-host. Alexa, can you sing us a song as we leave? Hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Alexa, Alexa, sing us a song. Oh, there it goes. Oh. Up in the hills, the campfire noise, <laughs> graham snap, in twos, threes, and fours, a Thank you, listeners, for joining us for this week's edition of the Tiny House Podcast. Namaste. Now with Alexa and Pink Eye. <laughs> Too fun. But just as you go to take a delight, the graham cracker cracks. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. 
please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever, you tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon.